0: I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. In this podcast, I'd like to highlight some of the July content. The first article I'd like to cover relates to the important issue of anxiety disorders in childhood. Anxiety disorders are amongst the most common psychiatric conditions seen in young people, with a significant potential adverse impact on educational achievement family life and leisure activities Anxiety disorders often coexist with other medical, psychiatric and behavioral disorders It's common to have a positive family history and longer term anxiety disorders are associated with an increased incidence of anxiety and depression in adult life In this issue, Cresswell and colleagues discuss the assessment and management. Specific phobias, separation anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder and agoraphobia. The evidence base and practicalities of cognitive behavioural therapy are discussed, including low-intensity interventions that have been proposed as a means to improve access. The risks and benefits of pharmacological interventions are discussed with the authors advising caution about routine use. This review is comprehensive and helpful and essential reading for clinicians who regularly see children and adolescents with medical disorders where anxiety is a significant factor and intervention may impact. The second article I'd like to cover relates to abandonment of childhood cancer treatment. It's interesting and thought-provoking. Abandonment of childhood cancer treatment is a major contributor to treatment failure in low-income countries and virtually unknown in high-income countries. The reasons for this are complex. In this month's issue, Nyana and colleagues explore this in a descriptive study using semi-structured questionnaires to interview families of childhood cancer patients diagnosed between 2007 and 2009 who had abandoned treatment at the Mao Teaching and Referral Hospital in Kenya. There were 222 children diagnosed with treatment, and outcome documented in 180, Of these, 98 abandoned treatment. 53 families were traceable and 46 agreed to be interviewed. The reasons for treatment abandonment were financial difficulties in just under half, inadequate access to health insurance in 27% and transportation difficulties in 23%. There were many more reasons which are listed in the paper. Most abandoned treatment was after three months. Of the 46 children, only 9, that's 20%, were still alive at the point of family interview, of which 6 looked healthy. This is an important paper. Change requires improved access to health insurance, financial and transportation support, parental education, psychosocial guidance and improved communication. The wider issue of why children do not receive treatment is discussed in an accompanying editorial. The challenge is that in many countries, health care is a commodity for those who can afford it rather than a right. The third article I'd like to cover this month relates to long QT molecular autopsy in sudden infant death syndrome. It's a complicated paper, And it's full of genetics. Long QT syndrome is a group of channelopathies with 13 known genotypes which predispose to sudden death due to ventricular tachycardia. These are investigated by molecular autopsy in sudden death aged 1 to 40 years. The role in sudden infant death, i.e. under 1 year, is less clear where there are multiple potential risk factors. In this issue, Glengarry and colleagues investigate this in an unselected and then selected cohort. It's an interesting paper to work through. Rare genetic variants were commoner in the selected than the unselected cohort, although still relatively rare. Not all the variants were clinically significant, although risk factors were a predictor. Further investigation is time-consuming and requires family engagement. The authors therefore suggest, with respect to long QT molecular autopsy and sudden infant death syndrome, that this should be in approximately 10%, so with appropriate case selection, and suggest that testing should be confined to family history of previous sudden death, syncope, seizures or proven cardiac arrhythmias, absence of known risk factors for sudden infant death syndrome, particularly bed sharing with possible overlaying, sudden collapse while awake and high-quality autopsy and report excluding other possibilities. The fourth article I'd like to cover relates to cardiovascular disease in Noonan syndrome. Noonan syndrome, autosomal dominant, variable penetrance, is the most common syndromic cause of congenital heart disease after trisomy 21. The incidence is 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 2,500 live births. In this issue, Prendville and colleagues report the spectrum of cardiac abnormalities and clinical course of a large cohort, that's 203 patients. Cardiac disease was present in 81% including pulmonary stenosis, ASD, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In those with pulmonary stenosis, the majority had additional cardiac defects, including ASD or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or both. A genetic mutation of the ras map signaling pathway was identified in 62%, with specific phenotype-genotype associations for different cardiac defects. The outcome data is of interest, with median age at last follow up being 14 years. Surgery, that's 35 patients, or percutaneous balloon valvular plasty, that's 43 patients, was required in 47% with pulmonary stenosis. Of those who underwent pulmonary valvular plasty, 65% required further intervention. Of the 47 with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, more than 50% were diagnosed in the first year with additional cardiac lesions in 70%. Of those diagnosed in infancy, 8 out of 27 underwent spontaneous regression, not previously described, and 4 out of 27 died, one from the complications of preterm birth. The spectrum of conditions and reported outcomes, and there's more detail in the paper, is important for clinicians and families and will help facilitate counselling on outcome and prognosis. I'd like to finish by highlighting an article from the foetal and neonatal edition this month. This relates to cleft lip with or without cleft palate. Cleft lip, with or without palate, can be diagnosed antenatally by ultrasound and may be classified as apparently isolated versus associated with other malformations. There's little outcome data on isolated facial clefting. In this month's edition, Burnell and colleagues, by retrospective case note review, report the longer-term outcome of such cases. 15 out of 97 pregnancies were terminated, so follow-up data was available for 77 out of 81 live-born infants. Major malformations were found in 15%, including familial clefting syndromes, trisomy, 21 autistic spectrum disorders, brain malformations, fetal alcohol syndrome and Kabuki syndrome. A further 11 out of 77 had additional anomalies of minor impact, including cardiac anomalies and developmental delay. No child with facial clefting only had additional anomalies. The authors rightly conclude that there should be a low threshold to investigate concerns in an infant with orofacial clefting. The term isolated facial clefting should clearly be used with caution. I'm Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and would refer you to the journal website for further information on the papers that I've discussed. Thanks for listening.